Oh, hello, donks. You know what? I never checked my... Yeah, we're good. Okay. Hello, donks. My name is Luke Thomas. Today is uh, Wednesday, August the 20th here in Washington, D.C. at the Vox Media offices. This is the weekly live chat. Promotional malpractice is the name of it. It's official. Uh, I haven't set up everything else to, um, to make it work that way, but that's the way it works. I'll explain in a minute. Uh, thank you for joining me today on the chat. We'll talk about, obviously, front and center is Eddie Alvarez to the UFC, release from Bellator, what it all means, where it's all headed, uh, why it's significant, all the ins and outs of that. We'll also get into um, the latest with War Machine, if you're interested, uh, Overeem injuring people, but really whatever you want to talk about. So the best place to do that, of course, is on MMAfighting.com. You can ask in YouTube, but I probably won't get to it. The best place is in that particular comment thread, green comments, I get three recommendations, we'll get also get priority. You can follow me on Twitter, at SBNLukeThomas, I also answer questions there. If they have the hashtag chat wrappers, you can email me, Luke.Thomas at SBNation.com. And a uh, quick update, I know everyone, someone in the comments was making fun of me for the length of these opening segments that I do, but i got to get the word out, right? Um, as you know, we're on SoundCloud. You can follow me there. There's an RSS feed. You can set it all up for yourself. It's ready to rock. It should be actually in the MMA Fighting Post. All that's linked up, so you can get it from there. I encourage you to sign up. We have submitted all the stuff to iTunes. Just wait for them to approve it. It could happen today. It could happen tomorrow. The minute it happens, I'll let everybody know, and then once it's official, I'll link it up um, in each, each live chat comment or live chat post. Um, as soon as that happens. So any day now, any day now, we'll be up on this thing. About getting the back issues on there, I don't know how that's going to work, but uh, the old podcasts. But going forward anyway, we're going to be on there. Uh, with that said, as you know, today is, is not officially brought to you by, but this is what I'm having, Diet Barks Root Beer. It's probably god-awful. My wife made me that. Pretty good, huh? Pour that in here, and we shall get going. Oh, this just smells medicinal. There we are. Wow, holds everything. All right. Without further ado, let's begin, shall we? First question. By the way, the poll is up. Who will win at UFC 178? in the bout between Eddie Alvarez and Donald Cerrone. Right now, Cerrone leads, but not by much. So get your vote in. Assuming you agree or disagree. Uh, first question. <laughs> it's not actually a question. It's the tweet from Hector Lombard saying his nickname will be Hector Showweather Lombard with a, uh, a gif of Conan looking with a facepalm. Um, I don't know what he's thinking with that. The rationale was that he would show up no matter the weather, like he's always there, Mr. Reliable, but it just is very awkward. I said his nickname. He should just combine the best of the two worst nicknames in MMA and be show weather in 25-8. All right. Alvarez versus Cowboy. Eddie Alvarez seemed to take a lot of punishment when fighting Chandler, primarily a wrestler. How do you think his chin will fare against a clever and dynamic striker like Cowboy or even Pettis if he gets a title shot. Well, lots to discuss here. That's one's going to be interesting. Um, Eddie is notable because he can fight going forward like he did against Roger Huerta, and he can fight well backing up 
uh, like he did against Michael Chandler in the second one, a uh, second fight. So he's able to 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 compete intelligently in both directions, which not which I would not say Cowboy's as adept at doing. Cowboy's a little bit better coming forward. When you back him up, he's not so great. So for me, Eddie Alvarez, um, if you see him getting backed up, that doesn't necessarily mean he'll lose, but it'd be better for him to put Cowboy on his heels. I think there's a pretty tremendous size differential, particularly in the height. There's not a lot of guys of of Cowboy's level that Alvarez has fought. By contrast, or uh, that. Um, let me correct that. There's not a lot of guys with the makeup, the physical makeup of Donald Cerrone, the length, the reach, the excellent use of kicks from all different degrees and angles and, and sort of positions on the body that he uses. Um, Alvarez hasn't seen a lot of that. By contrast, I kind of feel like Alvarez is a really polished striker, um, uh, something of a mix between a volume and power puncher. But I think that you can make a pretty tremendous case that Cerrone's seen a lot of guys like that. So I actually favor Cerrone, particularly if he goes to the mat. You know, if Alvarez can be hurt um, for all of the good wrestling and competent grappling that Mike Chandler is capable of, Cerrone's a lot better at it, particularly with back takes and that, that kind of thing. So um, it'll be interesting to see. It'll be really interesting to see. Either guy is capable of knocking the other guy out. That's not an exaggeration. That's not a. That's not even a platitude. Like there are some guys you could put up against Nelson even in the UFC. I just don't think they're capable of knocking him out. But certainly Eddie Alvarez is one of those guys. Um, yeah, to me, it's which direction Cerrone moves. That to me is the most important issue. Um, which doesn't necessarily tell you which, what's going to happen. But if he's backing up, that is not good for him. That is really not good for him. Um, again, I think even being put on his heels a little bit with with Melvin, he managed to win. But it's really he's a little bit more movement dependent than than Eddie Alvarez. But it's a sick fight. Um, made the UFC 178 a little bit sweeter. You know, the loss of Cormier Jones is basically there's just no replacement for it to be honest. But um, this is making it a lot more palatable, and a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down, I suppose. Uh, over him being too rough in training. Thoughts on Andre Olovsky's quote, over him injures everyone. Anthony Johnson has also come out with similar comments. Isn't this something worrying since these kinds of comments have been following over him around in the past? Do you think he continues to fight at Jackson's camp after the Rothwell fight? In terms of the uh, the the vibe there, I can't possibly speak. Certainly, um, who was pissed about it? Olovsky was really pissed about it. Uh, I actually read some comments from some fans who were saying, you know, Arlovsky thought he was ribs were broken. He goes to the doctor and finds out he's fine. Isn't it just Arlovsky complaining? Maybe not. Maybe not. You know, there's a certain amount of um, the, there's a certain rule to sparring. Now each camp may have their own rule, but there is a dynamic that you don't do a hundred percent everything you possibly can. Sparring, even with those gloves on, you just don't do that. There, there are certain ways that you let off the gas a little bit that you wouldn't necessarily in a full-on competition, and it's hard to understand. It's hard to describe. But the same goes for grappling too, or wrestling. You know, you don't do big suplexes in training, at least not with a special coordinated environment. You don't do full-on kimuras behind someone's back, just cranking it. But you might do kimuras, but you might let off the gas a little bit in how you apply it. 
Um, same goes for striking. If somebody is hurting you to the point where you have to go to the hospital, you might be going too hard, and you injure your opponents, uh, or excuse me, you injure your teammates, you make it harder for them to have careers. There is a rule about that. There, it's not that Arlovsky's being weak. It's that uh, certain etiquette that is in place to keep guys healthy long enough to make it to a fight um, is upheld. I mean, you, how are you going to say Arlovsky is being sort of mentally and physically weak here and then complain about the injury bug? This is the sort of thing that contributes to the injury bug. Now, uh, Overeem is Dutch. As we know, the Dutch style is legendary. They compete exactly how they spar. That's just how they do it, and they do it several times a week. Kickboxing, I think you get injured a little bit less. I think actually takedowns and grappling can be really bad for your for particular joints. That's how John Jones was injured, as a matter of fact, and how Arlovsky was not injured, right? But obviously you can get injured all the different ways. You can break a hand, whatever, bust a rib, separate a rib. You get the idea, but the point being is um, this is why you have an injury bug, is that there are certain styles of training that aren't conducive to a prize fighter's career in terms of making calendar dates for the fights they've signed up for. To me, you get guys like Nick and Nate Diaz, who probably spar as much as anybody, but you, I would I would really love to see how they spar. Neither Nick nor Nate Diaz has ever pulled out of a fight due to injury. That cannot simply be coincidence. That cannot be some miracle of biology that these two guys have some kind of musculoskeletal uh, construction that allows them to just sort of absorb damage and wade through. It's, it's simply not possible, certainly since we know that Nick Diaz has had to have facial reconstruction surgery for all of his scar tissue. Um, these are mortal beings, but if they're making it to fights without being terribly banged up, we should pay attention to how they do that. Because they're doing something very, very right. And it's not luck, it's not serendipity, it's something that they're doing. What that is, I don't know, but it's there. Uh, and what Overeems appears to be doing, and the Dutch style, as it relates to MMA, it has some serious consequences. It certainly enables you to compete as you spar, and that's beneficial. Uh, you know, it'll weed out the weak, and that's beneficial, but it will also weed out the strong, and that's not. That rapper is a hashtag. Uh, now that this endeavor has a new name, we should change the hashtag. How about malpractitioners? Good, good hashtag. I might do that. Let me get the iTunes, th iTunes thing set up, and we might make some adjustments. Um, as soon as that's up and running, uh, because even when it goes to iTunes, it's not going to have promotional malpractice on there. It's a long story. When it first goes to iTunes, it's going to be the Luke Thomas live chat, which will be easier to search for to find, but then it's going to have its name changed. It's a long story. It's complicated. I, as you can see, I barely know what I'm doing, but I'm making it work the best I can, which I thank you for uh, putting up with. We'll, we'll make it happen. That is some gross-ass soda. Damn. Demetrius Johnson, not a needle mover. I know you have spoken at length about this, and there are many factors. Do you think that one of the factors is that when he came into the spotlight, hardcore fans aside, he got dominated by Cruz in a division itself, still in its infancy, and then dominated in the final round with McCall, leading to a draw? Is it possible fans have a hard time forgetting some of his past performances and giving full credit to his current talent and level of success? Certainly I wouldn't say that has nothing to do with it, but I just don't think it's that complicated. I really don't think it's that complicated. Those kinds of losses don't help, but there is a certain kind of inexplicable magnetism that makes stars who they are. It's kind of simple, guys. Star making is not 
Um, it can be done wrongly. It is the job of the promoter to facilitate it. There is a certain set of uh, things you have to do to ensure that stars are made. But the reality also is that either guys have the natural ingredients or they don't, right? Either they have the components of that kind of greatness or they don't. Your job as a promoter is to put them in a position for maximum exposure to not get in the way, to facilitate its development, as you see with Conor Gregor, giving him a headlining role, but giving him an appropriately tough fight, putting him in Ireland to really, you know, kickstart that market. Those are the kind of things you want to do as a promoter. I think they've. I think honestly, you guys know I criticize UFC pretty, pretty, um, pretty consistently on things. I really have to say I think they've done a pretty masterful job with Conor McGregor thus far. I don't. There's not much to criticize on that, to be perfectly honest. And he's done his part as well. And it's a it's a it's a tandem, right opponents, right time. The person who is about to be a star in the star making process, they take on much of the of the challenge and the work of doing that. I think that's the problem. We often sort of say to the UFC, why aren't you doing more? Why aren't you doing more? You cannot pull blood from stone. It's just not possible. The, again, the promoter has a role as a facilitator, as a non-obstacle. But that's that's a that's a backseat kind of role. That's or however what metaphor you want to make. Gas in the tank. I don't know. Whatever. But the primary responsibility is that of the fighter. They will have to do the heavy lifting because when they do, the media will come running and the fans will come running and interested parties will come running. Say sponsors. Or whatever the case may be, it's them that do it, and they do it effortlessly. They're not really all trying all that hard. Some exceptions abound. I think Chelsea Sonnen had to do an act to get where he was, and maybe to some extent Conor McGregor is acting or putting on an extreme version of himself, whatever you want to call that. But um, it comes it comes fairly effortlessly. They have a skill for it. One they've either developed, one they're either born with, a, a combination of the two. But again, promoters have a role. But every time I keep hearing it's like, well, was it... Was it the third round of the McCall fight? Was it, you know, fighting in, 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 on verses that that derailed what was going to be something greater? Not really, man. He's just not that guy, and that's okay. Doesn't make him not a great champion. Doesn't make him not a great fighter. Doesn't make him not a great ambassador for the sport. Challenges none of those things, but it doesn't it doesn't also challenge the idea that he's just not the guy. He's just not the guy. That can change if the guy who is going to be the guy and Demetrius Johnson have a rivalry. That can change things, but as it stands on his own with the current crop of contenders out there, he ain't the guy, and that's okay, man. Like it's not again, doesn't make him a bad person, but either this thing comes with a fair degree of ease, or it doesn't. And if it doesn't, I was there for that Cruz fight. If anything, Demetrius Johnson came out looking pretty damn good, you know, because I was in D.C. So what says the video is not working? Video seems to be working to me. Let's see. No, it seems to be working just fine. Uh See from the bottom here. I 
at the bottom, Michael Stetz, who's a great journalist over at uh, MMA Mania, says, Coker getting too much credit for releasing Alvarez. I've grown tired of hearing all the Revney bashing, and I think Coker is getting way too much praise for the Alvarez release. It's a bit odd to me. Uh, I'm not sure what you mean by that exactly. I, um, a bit too much. Everyone's like, oh, it's class. Classy guy. Well, maybe. I mean, I certainly do think Scott Coker is a classy guy. and I don't think that... I do think a part of his reputation that he's created for himself is a function of... Um, I think he wants to be an honest broker in negotiations. I think he wants to be viewed as a guy who is trustworthy, who is not just capable of making you um, into a great promotional attraction and making you a lot of money and giving you the possibility of a strong career, but on top of that, um, somebody you can trust and do business with. And so in that sense, there's a certain integrity that underpins Scott Coker's philosophy. On the other hand, let's just sort of talk about things plainly. You know, Bjorn Rebney had a certain style of doing things, which we've discussed has had its limitations. And I think this was a clear one of them. And I asked him about it. Why would you go white knuckle with your own talent? It makes very little sense. That said, um, Scott Coker could be the least classy person on earth and still realize it's in his best interest to let Alvarez go. I think one difference between Rebney and Coker is that Coker believes the opinion of other people matter. The opinions of other people matter. If there's bad PR, Coker takes that seriously. If there is dissension among fighters and whispering of uh, unfairness, I think Coker takes that seriously. He believes that those things either follow you or impact you in a negative way, and I think Rebnik dismissed a lot of that. Um, I just don't think he ever listened. I think he always felt like he knew whatever he thought was the best was the best. And um, Coker has a much healthier respect for the opinions of the community and the people that also affect his business. I think Revney was like, you just don't know what you're talking about. I'm smarter than you. And, and I think that, in the end, may have been what cost him. Give me one second. Let me see if I can turn this AC on. It's hotter than balls in here. One second. Sorry, y'all. Alright. State of the art. State of the is art. That's better. Now I'm not sweating like Patrick Ewing. Because I do. Let's go back to the top here if we can. Dana White getting angry at last Saturday's post-fight scrum. Luke, a reporter, asked Dana what, he, what, what was the thinking behind moving... Johnson versus Carriasso to UFC 178 this late in the game. And Dana got angry as if it was an illegitimate question because Johnson versus Carriasso was only a co-main event. To me, it seems like a completely legitimate question because there are a lot of fans who paid money to see two title fights at 177, and UFC made a decision to take that away from them. Talk about false advertising by Zufa. Um... Well, I mean, the fact that Dana White gets mad at a question, you know, just you can't let that bother you. You just got to ask the questions you feel are appropriate. So I can't comment on that one way or the other. I, in fact, I didn't even see that. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, what, what is there really to say? If you're a fan, part of the allure of 177 was that there were at least two title fights. 
something to be said for that. I mean, there's impact there. The sport matters there. Um, the fights aren't forgettable in that in that regard. You lose a lot of that, even if I grant that Johnson versus Carriasso is hardly the most relevant flyweight fight, flyweight title fight, or anything else. Um, and then promoting that to a headlining role in replacement of Jones uh, versus Cormier, which we talked about in MMA beat, is sort of an intractable position. Um, I think fans have every right to feel angry about it, or not, right? Fan entitlement doesn't need to be dissected as fair or unfair, with very little exception. Fan sentiment is what it is. Fans have a right to be angry, or a right not to be angry. But trying to, like, parse the whims and beliefs and uh, preferences of a group that is, and I don't mean this disparagingly, I mean this, this is what it is, that is basically inherently irrational, is is not a bad, good idea. Like, and here's what I mean by irrational. I don't mean irrational as in stupid, irrational as in angry mobs. But if you like something to the point where you're obsessed with it, or you're you're happy with it, or you're willing to forgive all of its flaws, you have a relationship with it that's not objective, and that's okay. Um, um, I have you have I have many of those kinds of relationships. Um, with things in my life, in you and your life, we have, we all have them. Um, sports is an easy conduit for them, which is why you see, I'm like, I'm a huge fan of so and so. So and so could say I'm a huge fan of Chuck Liddell. I'm a huge fan of pro wrestling. I, I'd rather be set on fire than watch pro wrestling. But I understand that that sort of thing is possible. When you when you become that enamored with it, you have basically an irrational relationship with it. In some ways rational, in some ways your your thought process about it is, is not is not you know going to be objective. It's it's a very subjective thing, and so. When guys don't want to see Johnson versus Carriasso take the place of Jones versus Cormier, whether that's fair or not from Dana's perspective, certainly fair from some fans' perspective. It's certainly understandable. I shouldn't say fair. I should say understandable. Certainly expected. As a value proposition, it's sort of undeniably a drop-off. Um, he is simply, I think, his frustration is that I'm trying to do the best that I can with what we have. Um, that seemed like the best option to make, and that there's a strong argument to be made there as well, you know? But um, it's, I almost never get, it's hard, you know, it's not that fans are always on the right side of the issue, it's that their preferences signal something else, you know. It's, it's not that, well, he's right or he's wrong. I mean, in some ways, sometimes that can happen. But most of the time, it's, it's like you take a step back and you say, what are the fans saying? They're saying X. Okay, that's not the issue to focus on. The issue to focus on is why are they saying X? And when you sort of do that, the rest of the discussion becomes irrelevant. All right, let's see here. Thoughts on what Dana recently said. Quote, show me a guy that ever said getting punched in the face was good for you. It's not. This isn't like some football situation where people thought they were wearing helmets and being protected. This is a combat sport. It's rough. People know what they're getting into here. If you had a friend or family member entering MMA, wouldn't you do everything you can to dissuade them, considering that most likely chances are they will end up with less than what they put into the sport with brain damage on top? No, not necessarily. I have many friends who fight MMA. Um, I wouldn't do that at all. What I would say is trying to force a level of awareness about what they're getting into. I think Dana's point is that the notion of brain damage following the careers of football players and how it's been brought to light, uh, you know, CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, and and uh, what was it, protease inhibitors, and whatever else is in the front of the brain, 
this is all research that has shed light on the game. I think we've always kind of known, if we didn't have necessarily a scientific body of work, to say that there are probably some lasting consequences to getting punched in the head repeatedly, uh, dementia pugilistica. Um, again, we're sort of still the tip of the iceberg with that, but there is a certain naked, hey, you're fighting for sport awareness that I think has uh, made people less have a shock factor than what you get out of rugby, what you get out of even soccer, all the heading that they do, and cheerleading, and believe it or not, because those donks get dropped in their head like it's going out of style. So so I think he actually has a point there. Um, but no, I don't know that I would stop anyone for MMA. I would certainly try to make them aware of what they're getting into. I would certainly try and provide as much support in terms of their health as I could. If it got to a, a point where I felt it was necessary to step in in some capacity, I would. But I think also people have a right to live their life how they want. If you want to drink yourself to death, I don't, I don't advise it, I, and I certainly understand family members who would want to stop you from doing it, but you have a right to do what you want with your body. It's my right, it's my life, F off. You don't get to say what happens here um, until we have an issue where others are being affected in a particularly precise and definable way. No, if you want to fight, you have absolutely the right to do that. Two consenting adults should be able to fist fight one another under certain regulatory conditions. Yes. Luke, did you watch that riveting press conference from Halifax? I made it two minutes in. Turn it off. Um, let's see if there's a different angle here. <clears throat> uh, no. Same one. Luke, did you get all giggly when you saw Eddie sign with the UFC plus being booked with one of the most entertaining lightweights, Don Cerrone? Um, no. Oh, well, yes. Um, here, let, me, let me actually go back and correct that one. Yeah, I mean, certainly. I had heard about this a few weeks ago. Um, I didn't know when it was going to happen, but it seemed like the, the, you know, the toothpaste was out of the tube on this one. Yeah, man, it's great. It's great. Further proof that being acquired is better than being homegrown in a lot of capacities. I don't know that Eddie Alvarez would stand out in the way that he has were it not for his reputational development outside of Zufa. Great to be acquired in that particular case. Um, makes an already amazing division that much stronger. Helps Bellator by getting rid of all, a bad blood and baggage and starting fresh. I mean, look at how many things Scott Coker has had to un-F since coming over there. Lots, man. Lots. There have been a ton of problems, and they're not over yet by any stretch of the imagination that he has had to work through before he can begin to really have an impact on how they do business. Um, and getting rid of Alvarez, while painful and not easy and has its own share of costs, is a better long-term play for them. It was the right move. Again, I do think Scott Coker's a guy of integrity, but you can make the exact same calculation and not be a person of integrity just realizing that bad PR has an effect on the way you do business. Pride salaries. Random chat question. Has there ever been any information pertaining to what Pride top Pride fighters actually made, say Shogun, Krokop, Fedor? I know Pride was able to steal a lot of UFC talent in the late 90s due to increased fight purses, but I always wonder what Pride's pay structure was like. Uh, tons of information, not that I'm aware of. I've heard one-off contracts of $200,000 for, I think, one of Vanderlei's fights. Um... But no, I don't. There's not a lot of. It's an interesting question. Not a lot of comprehensive information that I'm aware of. 
Um, I know a lot of the money was paid in cash in some cases. Um, it's a really good question. It's not one I've thought about a lot, but it's important. Let's go back here. Dana recently said regarding maybe doing less events, quote, we can't taper back. As we continue to go global, I'm leaving tomorrow to fly to China. If we taper back, how are we going to do China? How are we going to do Ireland? How are we going to do all these other countries? You can't go global and do less fights. You can't do it. At this point, I think it's fair to say that the product UFC puts out for fans yearly is expected to get excited for three to four cards, barring injury, a year, and the rest of the cards will be average or below. Do you see this hurting the UFC and the sport in the long run, or will the gain casual fans through massive increase in events offset the negatives? really depends on what kind of markets they can open up overseas. The entire premise of the move international is that they can open enough markets internationally to compensate for any downturn domestically. They're not comfortable with all domestic downturn, certain level they don't want to go below. They are comfortable with some, because it's inevitable, to facilitate growth globally. As a long-term play, I can see it having a lot of value. As a short-term play, it's got a ton of problems, and it's contingent upon, which something that hasn't materialized yet, getting into bigger markets overseas. Ireland's a great market, but it's a small market. China is an unopened market, but a massive market. Somehow returning Japan to what it was, if that's even possible, would be a pretty major and substantial boost. So the point being is Brazil has been the best overseas thing they've ever done. By far. Size of the market, amount of talent pool, monetizing it. Um, it's just been a complete win in every capacity you could imagine. But it's also been much of an outlier. Opening up Singapore is important, but it's, and then there's a lot of sort of money there, but it's still a fairly small market, I believe. Um, India, if they can open it, great. It's a huge market, but um, purchasing power among the average public is not particularly high, and how far away are we from doing that? And Ireland's great, but it's a small market. The bigger markets like France, Germany, um, these are these are huge markets. Germany is Euro Europe's largest economy. That's the one you want to get into, and that those are the ones that coincidentally they're the furthest behind on. So um, if they can do it, you know whatever. The second part about that I'd say is it's fine if they want to keep doing more shows, but if they're reliant on pay-per-view in the way that they are, they've got to simply do something about it. Pay-per-view in 2014 has been. You know, I think disaster would be a very strong word. I wouldn't go that far. It's just been completely unimpressive and lackluster, and it feels rushed and forced, right? I mean, Bjorn Rebney can say what he wants about, you know, UFC pay-per-view and if you watched it or if you didn't, but there was sort of one key insight he had, and he had the luxury of saying it, which was that we're only going to do pay-per-view when we can. All right, fine. You know, you don't have... I mean, that's take that for what it's worth, but I think there is something sort of keyed in on there. It's, a, it's one thing to have a scheduled amount of pay-per-view events and you kind of just plug them in as you can. It's another to have an event when you can do an event. And UFC can have a number of events. They can have, eight to, I think, healthy 8 to 10. Honestly, I think they could. Certainly 8. 10 might be pushing a little bit. But 14 or 13 is simply not tenable. It's just not tenable. And, and they may be able to make money off the majority of them. I don't know if they made any money off 174, to be honest. They may have broken even on that one. But... Um, that's my issue. They want to keep going international. Fine, you know, see what you can get out of it. Um, it'll hurt the North American economy or um, MMA economy. How bad? I don't know. We'll find out. But if they can open up China, it might be all worth it. But they are still dealing with the issue of pay-per-view being the largest revenue generator for their their organization. And you've got 178 will be uh, a good card. I don't know how well it's going to do on pay-per-view. I think it's. I'm not saying it'll do poorly. It's up in the air. 177. I don't, I don't, it's not a scandal to say that might be the worst pay-per-view card they've ever done. It will do very poorly on pay-per-view, um, and that's a problem. 
that was the one thing that sort of like like was was so hilarious to me about um. God, what was the bad, the bad card recently? I don't know. I don't know if it was the 170 or UFC 47. Um, I don't remember what it was. There was a bad card recently. It was like no no fun, and people were saying, you know, oh here we go. This is you know, or no, sorry, it was up. Anticipation around UFC 177 and everyone being like, my God, this is so bad, this is so bad. Folks, that's what you're going to get. You don't get to have shows like Ireland without shows like UFC 177. And what by that, what I mean is, it's not karma, right? It's not, it's not like the gods of justice or injustice helping you out one time and, and damning you the next. It's part of a strategy that the UFC is using that will, like, oversaturation does not mean you have bad cards all the time. You can have wonderful cards. But what it means is that the way in which you use your roster, you will at times rob Peter to pay Paul. You will have a set schedule that you can't meet in terms of your pay-per-view calendar. Um, and you will be using resources to build other portions of your business that would ordinarily be used for old portions. They're operating on a 2008, sorry, I should say 2009, or 10 vision of what pay-per-view is with a 2014 in terms of how much roster uh, what, the, what the size of our roster is how much of it we can use for pay-per-view on a 2014 model which has a thousand other demands that they have to fulfill um, that's what's what you're gonna get you're, you can you can come to me the morning after that Dublin card and be like dude I think this international thing is gonna work and parts of it I think will but in for for the foreseeable future that is going to lead to that. And you have to accept that. And maybe you are willing to accept that. Maybe as a fan you're going to say, you know what, I'm willing to make that sacrifice because I'll watch the Fight Pass card and I won't pay for this pay-per-view. Okay, but that has business-wide consequences too. Even if you vote for, uh, with your dollars as a consumer, you simply have to accept it. That, that's what it leads to. I'm not even trying to be insulting or make a, you know, a disparaging claims about the business. Certainly not. That Dublin card was a massive success. And Conor McGregor is a huge star in the making. You know, all, again, I said so the beginning of the show, but you can't come to me on the Monday after being like, dude, look what's going on, because I'm going to point you right in the direction of that. It's all, they're connected. They're not separate. Not one-to-one, -one, but this is all part, the, the linear shows that go really good to really bad, it's not just dumb luck. It's not just, oh, the card just turned out that way. The card turned out that way for very specific reasons, and they're all related to this current larger vision of what Zufa wants this organization to be. On the last MMA beat, you mentioned you weren't worried about DC Jones being in close proximity to Silva Diaz. Can you elaborate on why you're not worried about two of the biggest fights in 2015 taking place two weeks apart? I wouldn't call it an insignificant worry, but I don't think that... I think that the stories... So let's say let's say let's say you had 177 and 178. I'm not sure how far apart they are. Let's say it's three weeks. It could be two. I, I could barely keep track anymore. But just hear me out. Let's say it's what it was, right? Let's say it's three weeks. Um, and the current ones, not the old ones, like the current 177 card and the current 178 card, just as headliners, even. The story going in would be, ah, you got two UFC pay-per-views in three weeks. And you'd say, do I really want that? You know, like it's a little too much. I mean. How are you going to promote one? And it's just too much UFC. I can see you saying that. The difference is that not while I think these guys are, you know, Oprah level megastars. Jones Cormier is its own thing. 
and Diaz Silva is its own thing. And I do think that there is a market for, well, I mean, we could be wrong, but I do think there's a market for saying people will be, they won't lose interest from one to the next. They will also attract their own set of fans. I don't know that some of the casuals may want to see the first one. Some of the casuals may be more interested in the return of Anderson Silva. They're separate universes, and even though they're close together, two big fights with their independent appeal, not necessarily, although facilitated by, the UFC brand, um, I think that is, I think that's okay. I'm not saying you don't need to have any concern, but these are, these are entities to themselves, these two mega major main events. Close proximity doesn't help. The question is, does it necessarily hurt? And on that level, I'm not totally convinced. I can see a lot of people paying for both. I can see those different groups drawing a wide set of different people. Um, I don't see one being like, well, I want to purchase one and not the other. I, I think both will have a high level of enthusiasm. That's going to be a great month for MMA. True-false. Ronda defends her title in a main event in, the, uh, in a fight card in 2015. Probably true. JDS and Kane fight again in 2015. I hope not. God. People leave the building before and during the UFC 178 main event. False. That card's going to rock. Uh, Luke Thomas will host the MMA beat one day. I'm not the host, but if I ever needed to. Uh, Bellator will reach strike force level of success in the next 10 years. I don't know. Bellator will eventually be bought out by UFC. I doubt it, but maybe. Scott Coker versus Dana White versus Bjorn Rebney. Scott Coker seems to have the most professional, business-like demeanor of all. <clears throat> pardon me, of all the major MMA promoters. Do you think that this trait helps or hurts Bellator in the long run? Do these promotions need more polarizing figures like Dana White or Bjorn Rebney to pique fan interest and stir up media? Um, I think the most important thing is. It's a good question. I think it can be good to have a Dana White if you're the UFC. If you're a brand leader, it helps to have a front person who can do the things that he does in terms of media outreach and whatever strategic vision that he provides. But I think the worst thing you can do is try to be a Dana White copycat or a Dana White light. So in the case of Scott Coker, it actually benefits him to be the opposite of that. There are some costs associated with that. It's not When I say it's the right move, I don't mean it's the right move in all circumstances, in all ways. I mean it's, it's on balance the right move. Um, there's nothing worse than trying to be a bad Dana White. Let him do his thing and you do your thing. And I think the way in which Scott Coker naturally acts, sometimes it can get a little bit frustrating, but it's better than trying to be um, something he's not or a cheap facsimile of the original of what Dana White is. You gotta let Dana White do his thing, and then you have to find brand differentiation. You have to find identity, identity differentiation. And certainly Scott Cooker's success with Strikeforce has shown that he doesn't need to be those things to still have a modicum of success or really a great degree of success. He can do it how he does it. He understands media. He understands fighters. He understands the fight game. He understands promotion. That is plenty sufficient for a number two. UFC-Bellator relationship. On UFC's own homepage, they mentioned Eddie Alvarez coming from Bellator. 
This is a sharp turn from the usual stance on competitors, which is to never mention they exist. He also went on to mention he was the Bellator champ and to characterize his two fights with Michael Chandler as a great two-fight series. Do you think with Scott Coker at the helm over there that the relationship will become far more cordial? That is until Bellator signs away someone that is a needle mover. It's a really interesting question because I had heard that Scott Coker wasn't necessarily the most loved man when he was, during his time at Zufa. And maybe I heard wrong. I don't know. But that's what I heard. I heard they didn't like him too much. Uh, now, whether that's fair or unfair, I don't know. Anytime I've had a relationship dealing with Scott Coker, it's been, like everybody else, pretty great. Um, but um, I have heard that. Uh, it's interesting. You know, Dana White even mentioned when he threw What's-His-Face under the bus. Um, who, Lyman Good. When he tried it for tough, they mentioned he was the Bellator champion. I think there's a certain comfortability, and it's not strike force, you know. Bellator's a distant number two, man. I keep telling all this, like, everyone's like, you know. Again, Bellator at its highest levels can nip at the heels of UFC at one of its more lower levels, and I think that's always going to be a cause for concern for, you know, hyper-competitors like the people who run the UFC. I don't mean to say that they're completely separate universes, but at the same time, maybe Zufa has just become more, this is how it should be. This is how it should be, you know, like, you should be comfortable enough with your position that you can even acknowledge who a, a different promoter without having to whitewash history. I, I see that, frankly, as a positive step. Um, we're not accustomed to it, but that's what it should be. Bellator is not a threat in its current incarnation at all to the Ultimate Fighting Championship. I think Bellator's goal right now, build some stars, get some good ratings, make some money, and then we'll move on to the next stage after that. But they're still not even at that stage, you know? So um, so I, I don't know if, if someone asked me, do you think Bruce Buffer, when he introduces Eddie Alvarez, will mention the fact that he was a Bellator lightweight champion? I don't know. They might, but it, they kind of should. They mentioned old Strikeforce champs, and I know they bought out Strikeforce, but listen, Bellator is not a threat to you. No one's going to remember that. If you, when people talk about MMA on Sports Talk Radio, which is like... I don't, I don't hold that up as the ultimate example of fair or interesting or important sports talk, but I just mean when MMA does reach that level, which it typically does not, they don't know who Bellator is, you know, or very few of them anyway. Now, they might know, they certainly know what Spike TV is, and, and they might remember a couple of fighters and stuff, but um, Bellator's got some work to do, man. They got some work to do. They got some work to do. And UFC shouldn't be threatened by that. Macau card, latest prodigy. How excited are you for this guy, Royston Wee, fighting on the Macau card? I'm curious to see if he can pass half guard. Uh, let's see. UFC stars at WWE SummerSlam. Beyond your personal distaste for pro wrestling, do you think the UFC can or should prevent their stars from so publicly attending WWE events? Why would they give up? Lion ass f. Why would they care? There are people on their free time hanging out. Who cares? Who cares? True false. DC has a 50% or better chance to beat John Jones. True. Eddie Alvarez is a top five UFC lightweight. I want to see how he does against Cerrone before I answer that. Scott Coker's fighter-friendly mentality pays dividends in landing top fighters in the future and also retaining them. True. The lack of huge events in the UFC over the next few months is an opportunity that Bellator should take advantage of and load up on a card or two 
before January. Um, there's not much you can do in that window, to be honest. They, they have, they're, they're, they've got, they're a year away from doing events. Like not a year. They're six months or more away from doing events the way they want to do. John Jones is still the UFC light heavyweight champion after his next two fights, because he could lose it and get it back. So I'd say true. All right, UFC wants. Let me, let me look at Twitter real fast here. Uh, watch the Brooke Porter fight. I did not. Well, it says, say Swanson fights Edgar, and Edgar wins controversially. Okay. And McGregor KOs Dustin. Think McGregor gets a title shot. That is interesting. Uh, that is interesting. I don't know. They might give him. They might give him Ricardo Lamas if Lamas gets a win in his next fight. I don't know. That's really tough to say. The last thing they want is a paper champion. You know, people keep saying, "Oh, they give him a title shot," but what does that really mean? So let's say he even wins the title fight. If your guy is not ready, man, your guy's just not ready. You know, he's just not that guy. So. Uh, I don't know. I think I think that Conor McGregor is going to get some favorable matchmaking, but not. I don't mean that in the sense of fights that mean nothing on route to a paper championship. He won't defend against top contenders. Either he can beat the Ricardo Lamases of the world, and he could beat the Dustin Poiriers and the Frankie Eggers of the world, or he can't. And right now, I don't think he can do that. But as he develops and matures, maybe he can. All right, 177 is two weeks away, and the card looks like this. Dillashaw versus Burrell, two. This should be a good fight. Ferguson Castillo. Uh, Cojea versus Baszler. Nijim versus Fajera. Medeiros versus Edwards. Larkin versus Brunson. Jorgensen versus Cejudo. Potts versus Hamilton. Soto versus Burchak. And then... Uh, this would be the card if no other cards were happening in August. Dillashaw, Burrell, two. Jacare Musasi 2, Woodley Kim, Bisping Lee, Bendo Dos Anjos, Mian Pyle, Larkin Brunson, Carmont Lightes, Castillo Ferguson, Sahudo Jorgensen, Alex Garcia, Neil Magny. Um, yeah. What do you want me to say? Someone asks, is Bellator going to be in Bruce's vocabulary? It'll be very interesting to see. I watched the first round of Bader versus OSP, but had to turn it off, and it went exactly the way I thought it would. OSP striking was so amateurish, and Bader was happy to do his thing. What sort of fan am I now? I think I'm even more hardcore these days as I refuse to sit through crap fights. Your thoughts? Um, I agree. I agree, because what comes with being... People think, I'm a hardcore fan. I watch everything. No, you're not a hardcore fan. You're a dumbass. You're a dumbass, is what you are. It's like... Who says stuff like that? I mean, I'm a hardcore baseball fan. I watch all the innings, and I, and I sing through the seventh inning stretch like I'm Harry Carey. Like, you're not a hardcore fan, man. You're just a lemming. You're, there's a big difference. Part of being a hardcore fan is that it's not just that you have a tolerance for watching more MMA, because that part is true, but it's also that you have a more sophisticated fight fan palette. 
that you know good fights when you see them. That, that doesn't mean that you apply the strictest standard necessarily to all the fights you watch. You can't. If you watch Cage Warriors, you have to have a certain understanding that they, these are guys in the developmental stage of their game. Um, fair enough, but that doesn't mean you watch boring fights because I'm a hardcore fan. It's, ne it's never boring. Dude, sometimes MMA is boring. Sometimes football is boring. Sometimes soccer is boring. Sometimes wrestling is boring. Sometimes judo is boring. Sometimes running is usually boring. Fights can be boring. Your hardcore... Your, your membership to the hardcore community is not preserved by watching fights that do nothing for you. It's okay to have a, you know, a relaxed standard of expectations when you're watching a relaxed standard of fighting. And if there's a value to it, hey, I want to watch these regional shows because I like, like watching up-and-comers. Fine, that's fine, no problem. Um, but if you're watching the highest level of the game, guys who are threatening for top ten in the world, and it's boring because they're limited in what they're capable of doing, you have every right to turn it off. And that has nothing to do with what kind of fan you are. In fact, if you didn't turn it off, I'd ask you what's wrong with you. There's no point to watch it. Well, I mean, the other day, like for example, like I'm really kind of trying to get into soccer, football, for all my European uh, watchers. Um, some of y'all are Australian and, and New Zealand, and it's soccer over there. Hats off to y'all. Um, and so, for example, like on Saturday, I watched the Arsenal game, and then I watched a bunch of other EPL, and then I watched Paris Saint-Germain do their thing, and, and uh, Ibrahimovic get carted off, not carted off, but walked off, you know. And then Sunday, I watched DC United. Dude, like, I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh, the game, I watched it. I watched the DC United game because it was 4-2. to two. It was a high-scoring game by soccer standards. But the level of play was a dramatic drop-off, man. I think Bill Hamid, you know, the, the goalie for DC United, he's pretty good. You know, I think he could play overseas. But um, but point being is I'll watch things with a relaxed standard if I have a certain kind of attachment to it. Oh, it's my hometown team. I'll support them. Um, but if I'm watching... Uh, um, if I'm watching an EPL game and it's between two teams I don't I'm not necessarily the strongest affinity for, and it sucks, I'm flipping the channel. It doesn't I mean this is this is a common act that sports fans make. Even dedicated, knowledgeable, down in the weeds kinds of guys. It's only an MMA where it's like I watch shit fights. <laughs> I watch S fights. And I'm and I'm I'm the hardest of the hardcore fan. No, you're just a stupid person. Sorry about the curse. Who is your favorite MMA journalist that you have never talked to? Uh, I think I've talked to all of them, man. I can't think of one I've never talked to. You see 182 and 183. What effect does Jones, DC, and Silva... Oh, we've already talked about this one. Young Lee's physique... Have you seen the latest pick of Kung Lee's physique? Can't help but be surprised considering how doughy he has looked before. Bisping surely has the worst luck in the in the UFC in regards to who he has fought previously, Vanderlei, Vitor, Chell, and Hendo. Yeah, until I put a picture up next to it. Listen, here's all I'll say. Kung Lee's a sensational athlete. The pictures could not look more different. I'm hoping one of them is just photoshopped. That's all I can really say. We'll see how he looks on fight night. If he looks like the dude in the right, there's some questions we have to ask. Um, 
is Frankie or Francis Carmon's back against the wall if he loses his fight versus Talos Laites. That will have him losing his last three, and frankly, I don't want to see him ever fight again, so can't imagine he has much fan appeal to warrant keeping. It could be. It could be. Especially if you lose to a guy who was out of the UFC and brought back. Um, that That's never a good thing. Um, yeah, losing three in a row is typically... I mean, yeah, I mean, not, this, is not, this is not rocket science. You could easily certainly see a case for, for having him get yanked. Uh, and, you know, particularly the way in which he's fought, which is, you know, certainly his right... If you want to fight the way that Francis Carmel and Ryan Bader fight, it's fine, man. There's nothing anyone can say to you. But as a matter of practical business, if you don't win that way, it is not a good look for you. You cannot get cut faster. <laughs> you know what I mean? If you want to fight that way, cool, man. Do your thing. Go win the fights you need to win, you know? But once you stop winning, you should just have a basic understanding. Not that I agree with it. Not that I condone it. Just the way it is. If you fight that way and you stop winning... You are going to fast track your exit. Um, when in boxing, when fighters miss weight, they can negotiate how much of the purse will go to the fighter. Uh, can UFC fighters choose to go the direction it will always be 10% and 10% to the commission? Um, I don't think they can negotiate how much of the purse goes to the fighter. I'm pretty sure those are commission standard rules. Is there a specific example you're talking about? Let me know. Alan jo Juban. Luke, can you share any thoughts you in regard to Alan Juban? A pretty boy with a tendency to KO people in the first round. How do you see him going in the UFC? Man, I, you know, it's funny. I really struggled when I was doing the picks with that Seth Buzinski fight because I thought... I looked at... There's a, you know what's the great part? I'm, so I'm trying to watch more tape for these predictions because for like a year I wasn't watching any tape. I'm just going off my memory and I think it affected some of the picks that I made and um, I, don't, I don't mind getting them all wrong if I've at least watched tape on them. So I'm trying to watch more tape and refresh my memory. Even fights I've seen, in fact, most of these I have. Um, but the good part about YouTube and like now with the combination of uh, Fight Pass, although Fight Pass search functionality is still a disaster. That's the only part about Fight Pass I just cannot get over. And it's, I, I, I've said it before, it's the most difficult thing to fix. I know UFC is trying. I've talked to folks at the UFC about it. I know they're working on it. I'm just saying it's, as a user of it, and I pay for my own account, it's it's just the search functionality is, is horrible, but um, but I I, you know, I managed to make it work, and then of course with YouTube as well. There's a lot of tape out there, and I watched a lot of tape on Juban. I saw his the fight he was in. I think I believe with Legere, um, I believe that's the last fight he had before the UFC. It was on RFA, 14 or 15. Let me see real quick. I could be pronouncing Legere's name wrong, but. Yeah, it was Leger. So it was RFA 15. Um, really good fight. I thought looking at that, I was like, there's a lot of reasons to think he can do well against Bazinski. But I thought Bazinski would have tighter defense. Um, you know, Bazinski had gone toe-to-toe -to -toe with Thiago Alves before. And in a pot-shotting kind of way, and I thought he could drag, I thought he could just chip away at Juban doing that. But Juban's got, you know, heavy heavy hands. I, also, I'm, it's like anybody else, you know. He got dropped in that fight and managed to fight his way back. He's obviously a tough kid. He obviously has a ton of power. He's got um, he, I, his takedown defense to me is a little suspect, but he's good at scrambling and fixing the problem once he's gotten there, which is a good skill to have as well. So it's like any other prospect. He's not one of these guys that when you first watch him, he blows your mind, but there might be something there to watch down the road. He's a brown belt under Eddie Bravo. I'd be curious to see what kind of system he has for MMA jiu-jitsu. Um, 
people always ask me about these prospects, like, were you impressed? Were you amazed? He got dropped and found his way out of it. These guys are talented. This is the highest level. They're going to be capable of pretty amazing things. As a standard baseline, that's not enough analysis to do. I need to see exactly how his, foot, his footwork is. And I, I, I want to do a video where I watch fights and I show you what I'm looking at this to, 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 to gain an assessment of, of how they're doing um, and what kind of fighter they are and, and what they do well and what they do wrong. Not that I'm the world's greatest breakdowner of, of tape, but... Um, I think there's a lot of questions that Juban has not answered yet that he will in time. And until then, a lot, lot to like, but manage expectations are going to be the best thing you have going for you right now. Uh, Bader versus St. Pru, what did you think of this fight? I personally thought this was the worst fight in UFC history. Well, it was not the worst fight in UFC history, but it was terrible, yes. So is Will Brooks the Bellator lightweight champion with Eddie's departure? What fight should be made to determine the true champ? They're going to have to do a rematch between Brooks and Chandler. I just don't see how it is. I thought Chandler won that fight. Uh, I just don't see how you could argue against that. Well, I mean, I guess I can. I can, but the point being is I, I, they need to do a rematch. Or, you know... Give Dave Jansen the fight he's owed, but Dave Jansen's sitting out there too, you know. God, Dave Jansen won when my show was still on Spike TV. <laughs> Ugh. Thoughts on Gray Maynard? Should he retire? Yeah, probably so. Um, you know what's funny is you often hear these arguments like, uh, hold on. Let's see, let's see. Um, you often hear these uh, these uh, the argument that, well, you can't tell a fighter when to retire. And I always find that pretty ludicrous. Like, I mentioned, I mentioned this before in the chat. Like, I, yeah, like, great manager's not going to listen to me. What, but you're asking me for my opinion seems pretty clear on the outside looking in that there's a certain amount of ability you have to have to absorb damage. And when that is compromised, particularly when you're at the highest level, um, that's not going to get better. Defense could get better, but at age, how old is he now? 35, something like that? Do you think now the time to work on your striking defense? Like, that was years ago that had to happen, you know? Um, and if it's not here by now, there's little you can do. So to me, it's, it's uh, you know, what he wants to do will be his own decision. It's It's... It's a difficult one, I'm sure. It's when he has to make weighing a variety of factors, but the end of the fight game comes for everybody, and it almost never looks pretty. The end of your career, if you are a fighter, will look bad. Most likely. Nobody hardly ever, ever goes out looking good. Even old St. Pierre had everyone questioning whether he won his last fight, and maybe he comes back, I don't know. But the fight game is a game you go into roaring and you go out of limping. That's how it works, man. And everyone doesn't want to do that and they think they're going to beat the system and the system will beat you 99 times out of 100. It's just, it'll just, it's just going to beat you. Like It's just how it's going to be. Yeah, I heard, by the way, that uh, Expendables 3 tanked. 
earlier start time, with some UFC cards ending somewhere in the 1 a.m. range, even though they can't do it now because it would look like they are copying Bellator, don't you think the UFC would have benefited with an earlier start time? You guys remember when they tried to make the pay-per-views at 9 a.m.? Just or just, not 9 a.m. 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It just doesn't work. You know that 10 p.m. on the East Coast time is late, but it's 7 p.m. in the West Coast. You're managing that. It's it's that's the best balance. That 7 to 10 window is the best. And and Bellator's on. You know, um, with that 8 p.m. start time. But it's a different product. It's a TV product. It's four fights on a main card. It's it's just a different thing. And um, 9 to 11 is a fine time slot. Uh, no, no, the answer, is, the answer is no. I mean, you can play with it on occasion, which is what I think Bellator's doing, and probably to some extent what UFC will do in the future, but those, are, those windows are there for reasons, because those are the ones that are best for gathering viewers. Who um, should Anthony Johnson fight? If Gustafson, how would that fight go? Man, it really depends on what UFC wants for their calendar and wants for their needs. I could either be happy with Johnson fighting Bader, and then if Gustafson's still around because for whatever reason Jones Cormier hasn't happened. Here's the problem with like, the problem with what Gustafson is doing is he has to just say to himself, if Jones Cormier ends controversially and they do a rematch, you can't sit out again. You just can't do it. You can't. You've got to get back in there and do something about it. And whether it's fair or it's unfun or it's anything else is irrelevant. It's important to your career to not take that much time off. I, I am in favor of fighters doing whatever they feel is best for their career and I also think that sitting out matters. But there's a point of sitting out where you simply have to say enough. And if he wants to sit out till the results of January 3rd come in, fine. But he's risking a controversial decision happening. He's risking one of those guys getting a catastrophic injury that delays things. If the champion wins and gets really injured, who knows how long that's going to be. Like you're, you're, It's a ton of risk. So for, for me, what he has to say is, I'm taking a fight after the January 3rd event. And if it's with the winner of that fight, great. If it's not, then that's just what it has to be. And it sucks and it's unfair. But that brawl changed his career. He wasn't even part of it, and that brawl changed his career. And, and he has to come to terms with that sooner or later. Hopefully he gets lucky and doesn't have to, but I, I don't see how you can just sit out for that long and thinking, oh, I'm going to just pick up where I left off. You will not pick up where you left off. It will not happen. Do you feel the way in which Bobby Green was hastily removed from the Cerrone fight is justified? Yes. 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 Yes, 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 yes. Since Eddie beat Michael Chandler and is now the current Bellator champion, will he get a better deal than the previous UFC offer? He said he did, but until we actually see it, it's impossible to know. How lucky is the UFC to have Brian Stan? After the horrible fallout of what Sonnen left on Fox, how important was someone like Stan being able to automatically fill in his place? War hero, clean fighter, and even Stan commenting on Sonnen negatively of how strong he was during their fight, publicly calling Sonnen out on his PED issues. So it certainly does not hurt to have someone like Brian standing on in your roster and, and doing good things, trying to you know uh, raise awareness about the problems of PED use. Independent of that, um, a good ambassador for your for your brand, a capable broadcaster. <coughs> you could do worse than having Brian stand as an employer, or employee, or independent contractor. Is Overeem a dick? 
are the stories overblown? Is he really a total D-back to train with? Well, I've never trained with him, but um, probably stands to reason that some of his training methods could be revised. Luke, in the larger world of MMA, where the UFC competes against many other promotions, would the UFC not be putting themselves at a huge competitive disadvantage against other MMA promotions by having more stringent drug testing than the competition? Yes. Yes, they would. So I wrote that article about like what would happen if they became a WADA signatory, and everyone's like, oh, they're never going to do it. Blah. Um, and, and everyone sort of, uh, just f it's a fine point to make that why would UFC hamper their own business by putting in an anti-doping program that was so stringent that it could risk uh, damaging their ability to stage the fights that make them money. It's basically the, the key question. And the answer is maybe they won't. I don't know. I don't know what they're going to do. You know? well, what I can tell you is when, why I wrote that article, which seemed to be lost on some people, is I was trying to show what is the top standard. Right? Well, what would UFC have to do to have t the top standard, which still has flaws, but what would, the, what, what would that have to be? What would, that, what would that look like? It would look like this. It would look like this. And so no matter where UFC goes from now, you can measure what they do against that. Maybe UFC does enhance their testing program and pays for VADA or somebody else to come in there and, and handle all the drug testing and works with commissions to make the punishment stiffer. Maybe they do all that. And maybe that's clean enough for you. Maybe that's what happens, you know. But um, I think they do feel the heat of negative press. I don't think they like it. I know when you show up on Fight Week and you do scrums with Dana White, the last thing he wants to discuss is anti-doping. I think he wants to promote the fights, understandably. He's a promoter. Um, and they want to have this issue settled. They want to find a system in place where they're not going to kill their business, but they are still going to uh, nevertheless um, have some kind of drug testing that is effective and, and in some ways hopefully a deterrent. To, to the point about this, it's like, you know, the Olympic Committee can get away with it because they're not competing. I mean, yes, there's other sort of competitive games out there, but there's no other Olympic-style kind of event, uh, say, relative to the Summer Olympics, that's as comprehensive and as wide scale as it is. They can do full testing in the way that they do, and 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 all that's fine, you know. Um, <coughs> but those guys only compete once every four years, although they get tested all the time. But you get the idea, like, in a world where UFC is competing with one FC, who knows what the hell they're doing, if anything, and other promoters all over the world who either don't do drug testing because they don't care or can't afford it or a combination of both, signing something like WADA, which NFL hasn't done, MLB hasn't done, no major sports league has done, puts them at a, a serious competitive disadvantage. But I think what they would say is, and I don't know how I feel about this argument, but I would give it to you, is that isn't there a place in sports to say you have to respect the rights of clean athletes to compete in an ethical playing field, metaphorically and literally. Isn't, isn't that what has to happen? Don't clean athletes have certain rights in competition? And I think on some ethereal, out there way, we all are sympathetic to that idea. It's just that when the rubber hits the road, everyone kind of balks. Um, and I don't have all the right answers, but I wrote that article to just show you this is the gold standard. And everything down from that, you still may be comfortable with, but this is how far apart we are. And if we want to change that, we have to move in that direction. I doubt we go that far, too. In fact, I'm sure UFC will never sign the WADA code. 
but they may take some fundamental steps that are important enough to be a game changer to satisfy those conditions about drug testing, um, to reduce the amount of bad press, and nevertheless not hamper their ability to give the fights the fans want to pay money to see. That's funny. Uh, someone says they rewatched MMA Beat Episode 1. This past week I rewatched the first episode of the MMA Beat. In spite of being almost two years old, the topic of, topics of discussion were oversaturation from too many shows. There were 34 that year. The cancellation of a major show, this time it was 151, the need for a fighters union, potential super fight with, involving Anderson Silva. Is it Groundhog Day? Can we just assume we'll be talking about the same things next year? Probably. War Machine Innocent. I doubt that. Luke, now that your podcast has a name, shouldn't you be thinking of some kind of intro music for it? I suggest Face the Pain. I mean... <laughs> I would rather... I would just rather die, to be honest. So hilarious. Paige Van Zant injury, like the world turns, I guess. Uh let's see. Over the last year I have seen more national TV advertisements featuring Chuck Liddell than all active UFC fighters combined. Even though Liddell continues to be a fa favorite of management, why is the UFC putting so much support behind a retired fighter who will never fight again as opposed to one of their young, rising talent? Well, because it's a Duralast commercial and they're paying for it. It's got nothing to do with the UFC's decisions one way or the other, except to say uh, that is kind of telling that a previous star from a different generation still matters more than any of the current generation, at least so far as brand exposure for their last is concerned. Who can challenge Kane at heavyweight if Verdum loses? I have no con I don't think anyone can, to be honest. I I just don't think there's any guy out there. Not to say that a big punch from Derek Lewis couldn't put him out or Verdum couldn't get lucky. Um but nine out of ten times, there's not a fighter at heavyweight that Cain Velasquez is going to lose to. At least not right now. If UFC was to ever sign Michael Chandler, do you think it would be beneficial to them to finish the trilogy in the UFC, or would it give too much attention to Bellator? Uh, probably would. Probably would. Because how are you going to promote that fight? Oh, it's the third time these guys, these guys have fought. Although they did that with. Noguera and Minotaro, oh, excuse me, Minotaro and Herring, and I guess before they had, no, I guess they had the rights to the library at that point. Maybe they did. True or false? The following fighters will get title shots within the next year. Anderson Silva, false. Anthony Johnson, true. Rory McDonald, true. Juicier Formiga, false. Don Cerrone, I think false. Rafael Sunsau, true. Luke Rockhold, true. Conor McGregor in the next year, false. Glover Teixeira, false. 
Could Josh Barnett make a fight with Jared Rochelle actually entertaining? All Rochelle's fights have been pretty damn boring. Could Barnett negate his wrestling and punish him for calling him out? You would think. Josh Barnett has pretty good takedown defense, good scrambling, certainly enough underneath to survive. Rochelle, he's a behemoth, but his ground pound leaves a lot to be desired. Um, I would certainly favor Josh Barnett to win that contest and to win it fairly handily. God, this is a difficult question. Quick percentage estimates. Percent of professional heavyweights that are just tall, fat dudes. Uh, I don't know if there's a percentage, but it's high. Fans that have to comment about which female fighter is hotter, like 90%. Training partners that get injured by Overeem. Enough. Chance that Fedor versus Couture happens at Metamoris. How are they going to afford those two guys? You're going to see drug testing in Metamorphs before you see Couture versus Fedor. Unless they just take a bargain basement. I just don't think Fedor is in on that kind of competition unless he gets paid big money, and I don't think they can afford him. Who do you have in Klitschko versus Pulev? I mean, come on, serious question. Do you see anyone outside of Ronda Rousey beating Sarah McMahon? Yes. I think Kat Zingano can beat her. I wouldn't be surprised if Misha Tate beats her. I think a lot of people can beat Sarah McMahon. And I like Sarah McMahon a lot. She fights at Tacoma Park, baby, but I don't know. Cruz's return. If Cruz wins by dominant fashion, should he get the title shot or should he take another? What if he wins by controversial split? I think he wants to see how he looks. How's the jab look? How's the footwork look? How's the gas tank look? How do the nerves work? How how'd the weight cut go? Let's just get it all under our belt. I'll make an assessment from there. But if he goes in there and just molly wops Takei Mizugaki, a very tough fighter that's hard to put away, I wouldn't I wouldn't be upset with the title shot for that. But if he goes in there and it's, you know, more like Alves versus Bazinski, because I think that was Alves's return to competition after his long layoff, then I would say things, you know, let's let's have a more measured approach. UFC entrances. How tightly does UFC regulate their fighters, how their fighters enter? Very tightly. We have never seen any showy entrances in the UFC. Is this just a fighter's choice or is it the UFC's? UFC's, with some exceptions. You saw the James Tahuna haka dance. Um, uh, what's his face? The guy that um, Chandler knocked, retired. Uh, oh, what's his name now? The Japanese guy. I believe I have to even say the Japanese guy. Horrible. Uh, Akihiro Gono. Gono used to have a couple of entrances, but they would be on the prelim card. You wouldn't be able to see them. This was back in the days before Fight Pass or Facebook. Yeah, I, I, I think there's room for that. Now, partly it's a timing and production issue. You don't want these to go too long because... Hold on, I'm about to lose my... You don't want these to go too long because um, your production notes are really tight. Everything's got to meet a certain calendar. Uh, a certain timing calendar it has to be there, 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 there. And if it, and if you lose that, then you lose. You could go over your. You could go over uh, on um, the pay per view. You might have to wind up ending up refunding viewers. You just don't want to do that kind of thing. So um, I can see why there's some apprehension about it, but that still seems to me. Oh, and you had you know James Tahuna doing the Men in Black thing. I don't know. I don't know if, there, if there's a way to work it in from a production standpoint. 
the more the better. I think those kinds of things are actually pretty memorable. I think those kinds of things are fun. They add to the broadcast. They add to the atmosphere. And it just breaks up the monotony of just fighter walks out to dudes yelling in a microphone or rapping over terrible beats and getting intro and getting out. Let's have some guys stand out, the ones who can, you know. And maybe pre-approve them. I'm not saying let them do whatever they want. Um, you know, try to find a way to, from, from being overtly political. But nevertheless, I think that I'm able to remember the, the ones where people do it because there's, A, there's so few of them, but because they are kind of special. You do remember when James Tahuni gets a Haka entrance or when Akihiro Gono puts on a wig and, and does what Akihiro Gono does, you know. Um, there should be more of that. There should be more of that. Um, Phil Baroni says he was cut by Bellator for supporting War Machine. Is there any truth to that? I don't know. Luke, do you think if GSP asks for Askren as his first comeback fight, UFC officials would grant him that? No, I don't think they would. You use Just for Men to keep the gray out of your beard. If I am, it's not working. Uh, let's see. UFC fighter injuring another out of a pay-per-view card. Should there be a penalty? We have seen this before. Signed fighters injuring each other to the point where a card needs to be altered. Should there be a penalty for the fighter who injured another out of the pay-per-view event? No. That's crazy. How are you going to, like, what kind of penalty are you going to give them? These guys don't have money, <laughs> and they have no other ability to make money besides fighting. What are you going to do? Uh, let's see. I'm not going to say, Sarah McMahon, I'm not going to say she lost her fight, but I'm not going to say I was overall impressed with her performance. This is for Sarah McMahon. Sure, her takedowns are nice, but not much else. Was her control on takedowns truly enough to have won that fight? Is this a step back for her? Well, you, you just said she didn't lose. I, I have to say, um, the major takeaway for me for Sarah McMahon is that, first of all, this is like undisputable proof, or I should say indisputable proof, that she was rushed to that Rousey fight. I mean, everyone else knew that, but... Here was the major takeaway for me, the Sarah McMahon fight this past week. Um, stays blowing up, son. It's that even when you have an inexperienced fighter and they get rushed into a position of prominence, where in this case she then had to fight Rousey, a lot of times what you see happen after that is that they... I mean, Sarah McMahon knows how to train. I mean, that's not... That's not a new thing. But a lot of times when you see fighters like that go through a, a world-class camp for the most important fight of their life, which is what that was, they often turn a corner after the fact. They don't all of a sudden just become better than what they were, but they're able to then take some of the things they developed in that camp and prepared for in that fight religiously, and you're able to see it a little more clearly against lesser competition. I didn't see any of that, or very little anyway. A little bit more mixing up the strikes, you know. Obviously, she's got a great array of takedowns. Obviously, she's got, you know, she's a physical beast. She's a good fighter. She's definitely a strong fighter in that division. I'm not taking any, way, any of that away from her. I was not overwhelmed with the guard passing attempts. Um, 
I was not overwhelmed with the comfortability on the feet. I was not overwhelmed by circling. I was not. I was just a lot. I was just like, I thought that that camp would usher in, you know, a again, not a dramatically new person. That's just not possible in one camp, but certainly some new tools we could put. She could put it to work, and I just didn't see it. Um, and it sort of speaks to the fact that as you age and as you get older, acquiring these new skills becomes very, very, very difficult. That Randy Couture did it, in, and Bernard Hopkins had done it, is to me just evidence of the fact that those two guys are once-in-a-lifetime kind of fighters, and everybody else is, is, can be very good in the elite, but they don't have that kind of capacity for late-life growth. That camp, I'm sure, made her a better fighter, but it seemed ever so marginally. Um, and I think that to me was the troubling part. Let's see here. Organized entrances have to be timed and planned. There's too much to get through in a broadcast. Yeah, I figure that's what it was. It's because they just simply they just don't have time for you to to whatever. Even on those glory broadcasts, man, I've seen the liner notes for them. <coughs> and when they time each ring walk. And when a guy is up there dance like uh, Benjamin Adek Bowie will go up there and he just dances the whole time on his way. Um, I can hear people in the production office being like, "Oh my God, like, let's get this along, let's get this along." Not that they're mad at him or anything. He's doing his thing, but they, you know, there's just certain time constraints they have to adhere to. Um, pick a winner between Woodley and Kim. What do you think of Korean Zombie versus Korosani? I think Korean Zombie, if he's the same one we saw at the end. But his injury against Aldo will do just fine against Corsani, and I like Woodley to beat Kim pretty handily. You know, I can say whatever you want about that, but it's the truth. Uh, will we eventually see more martial artists in the UFC? No, if anything, you'll see less. MMA is the intersection between martial arts and prize fighting, but it certainly heavily favors the prize fighting side of things. And most factories that produce fighters are that, fight factories, not martial arts gyms. You'll see some, not many. I'm not sure where Donk came from, but it can go away. It can go away, but it won't. Ben Askren is 13-0 with a fight coming up. If by the end of 2015 he's still undefeated at like 18-0, which is the most likely outcome, will the UFC sign him and give an immediate title shot? No. Will UFC sign him and give him some non-dangerous fights on free TV to get his name bigger then give him a title shot? Maybe. <coughs> UFC sign him and throw him against the most dangerous welterweight and not the champion? Maybe. UFC refuse to sign him? Likely. But I see big knockout boxing, which, by the way, used to be bare knuckle boxing where the gloves had an opening slot here. I mean, how much the knuckles actually made an impact, I don't know. It's in, like, this Yama pit, not nearly as big. It's small, but there's no ropes. You can't lean against the ropes. So the guys are constantly forced to face off. It's the dumbest thing on earth. The guys who fight, it's a step up. It's not quite boxing, but it's a step up from the guys that Kimbo Slice fought in, the, in a big lots parking lot. Um, no, they've had some better guys than that. That's not fair. All right, but um, it's 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 terrible. Let's just leave it at that. It's just terrible. Is that a coworker working from a standing desk behind you? Yes, lots of people in the office work standing up. And if you read that Onion article, my disdain for them has grown dramatically. I'm just kidding. Um, 
Holm versus Cyborg or Holm versus Zingano, what match seems most realistic? Zingano. How can you even... <laughs> How could you even say Holm versus Cyborg is more realistic for someone who's not under roster? Why do you keep asking me about the number of people on... The same dude keeps asking me every week, how many, what percentage of guys are clean? What an irresponsible, stupid-ass question. I am so sick of you asking me this. Seriously, dude, how can you possibly know? There are 500 guys on roster. You To make any kind of educated guess, you'd need a thousand times more information than you could possibly have now. Not just you, me, anybody. It's an insanely irresponsible thing to ask. Not because we're accusing any particular name, but because we don't even have one one-hundredth the amount of information that we need to make that kind of assessment. That is a difficult, difficult, difficult question to answer. One that should be answered. One I can't answer. One you can't answer. Frankly, no one in the sport can answer. You get on here every week and you ask me the same thing as if I'm ducking and dodging. Dude, I don't know. How many people in the United States like cranberries? A little bit. 6%? I don't know. Let's just, let's just, get, let's just give wanton speculation about what it could possibly be. Or we can shut the F up and leave questions like that unsettled because we don't actually have to answer all questions that come to our brain. We should only try to tackle the ones that seem feasible if the short or the long term. Asking how many guys in MMA or in the UFC or on PEDs is simply like asking how many angels fit on the head of a pin. I don't know, you don't know, and we're never going to know. Please stop asking. Please. And please quit acting like my non-answer is some kind of dodge. Like I actually got a memo Oh, this is straight from Lorenzo Fertitta's office. It's actually 54%. I better keep this one close to the vest. True or false? Viacom or Zufa buys World Series of Fighting before 2016? That's, that's, I don't know. There's a decent probability. Weidman finishes Belfort inside two rounds. True. I think he's going to truck Belfort. UFC 177 does less buys than 175. True. Oh, easily true. I think you mean 174. I think it'll match 174. Bisping fights Silva before he retires. False. Frank Mir fights again. True. UFC start showing RFA and Legacy FC events on Fight Pass eventually. I don't know about that. I think they have a pretty good deal with access. Luke, what is your opinion on seasons of the Ultimate Fighter culminating in title fights? Don't you think that having champions locked into tough coaching roles contributes to the frailty of pay-per-view cards? Uh, we've sort of covered this. I think it works for the 115-pounders, but that Melendez versus Pettis thing only happened because Melendez went to Bellator and got a good offer. Luke, who's the girl behind you? Is she single? Uh, that is Melissa Bell from Vox.com. I have no idea if she's single. Heavyweight number one contender. Oh, wait. Uh, let's go to Twitter here real quick. We just got a couple minutes left. Sorry, one more. What percentage of UFC fighters do you think enjoy IPAs? I bet a lot of them because they're used to drinking bad beer and don't realize that IPAs are actually. Um, IPAs are like. Uh, IPAs are the new metal of beer. That's what they are, frankly. They're the new metal of beer. And I absolutely cannot stand them. And I don't know, well, in very light amount, I, they're okay. But they're usually pretty gross. 
and uh, there are other beers that are significantly better. All right, we'll do one more here, and then we'll end this little doohickey thingy. We get one from... God, I'm just so sick of... We'll do one more here. Uh, Ishii versus Krokop this Saturday. Luke, your thoughts on this matchup and where Krokop can go at his age, glory, or MMA, or retirement? I don't know what his future is going to be with Gloria. I haven't heard anything about that. Obviously, Gloria is going through restructuring. Their new president is the guy I initially tried out for um, when I lowly as many months years ago. Now at this point, um, I don't. I don't think it's fair to say that Krokop's out there just collecting a check. I don't think that's true. I'd, he's training. I think he wants to win, but I also think he's going out there with not the same kind of vinegar and piss that he had when he was a 20-year-old, which is understandable, and, and frankly, if he was still that way, I'd, I'd wonder what was up with him. Um, Ishii, on the other hand, I've still got some hope for. I think maybe he's kind of turned things around a little bit. I don't know. We'll see what he does against Krokop, but he's been doing well of late. I know that he's now training a little bit with Josh Barnett. Um, I still have some hopes for him. I still believe that while initially being thrown to the wolves by the Japanese promoters, that there's potentially something that can be salvaged in the middle there. Um, if he loses against Krokop, I suppose all that goes away. But we'll see. We'll see what both guys look like. But Krokop, uh, you know, he's been very difficult. You know, he's a surly guy when he's been at these uh, glory shows, you know. just He's overall the media and the BS and the pretension. He just wants to get in there and do his thing. But he is training. He does look to be in pretty good condition every time we see him. And uh, Ishii, I think, has finally had some time to round out his game. So a little bit more of an interesting fight than I think some folks realize. All right. With that said, time to go. Let me. Uh, I'll say again real quickly. When we get to iTunes, I will put out a note right away. Follow me on Twitter for all the updates about this, at SBN Luke Thomas. That's the best way to do it. I will let everyone know about everything that's going on. And when we get on iTunes, which should be here very soon, I will have completed at least this, uh, the initial part of my promise to you that we would actually get this done within the year. Uh, email me at luke.thomas at sbnation.com. Thank you for watching this. Spread the news about it. I'll have the SoundCloud MP3 embed player in the MMA Fighting Post once this is over within about an hour and a half. Okay? Until next time, stay frosty.